Welcome to Christianity 101. We're into lesson number 13. This is the critical lesson of the doctrine of baptisms, plural, baptisms, more than one. This whole lesson is going to introduce to us the concept of baptism and then look at the four New Testament baptisms. And actually, we might put a little asterisk there and say there's actually technically a fifth New Testament baptism, though, though we don't really cover it in the lesson. We'll cover it just as uh, extra notes that you could write down. Our text verse is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. This begins to let us know that there's more than one baptism, and we should go and look at the plurality of baptisms if we want to be nice, well-rounded Christians. Before we get into it, let me pray for us, because we're going to need help in understanding all this. Father, I thank you for Christianity 101, for all of our new students, our new believers, our new church members, and anybody else listening to this. Give them eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to understand. Quicken their understanding and broaden their Christian knowledge base, broaden their doctrinal base, and may they be immovable for you. Thank you for blessing our time and our technology as we record this and help teach the body of Christ great things. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, the author of Hebrews says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. All right, so he's about to talk about the principles of the doctrine of Christ principal doctrines of Christ. There's six of them. Uh, the subject of our lesson is not all six, but one. But there are six principal doctrines. Here's one of them. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. That's number one. And of faith toward God. That's principle two. And we get to the third one of the doctrine of baptisms. There's your third principal doctrine of Christ. I'll read you the other three. I want to get it right and not ruin it. Laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So your six foundational principal doctrines are repentance from dead works, faith toward God, doctrine of baptisms, resurrection of the dead, laying on of hands, and eternal judgment. These are the six principal doctrines of Christ. Now the purpose or the emphasis of this lesson is the doctrine of baptisms. So look at the word, it's baptisms, it's plural. Most folks, most Christians, if you ask them about baptism, they can think of one, water baptism. But a closer study of the New Testament reveals four, and technically a fifth one that's kind of an asterisk one. We'll cover that one last. The word baptism is from our word baptizo. Baptizo, of course, is another Greek word that gives us directly the American English word, baptizo. It means to submerge as to dye a garment, to place into or to immerse. So when we talk about baptism, we're talking about literally submerging, placing, holding under. Like the one translation, to dye as a garment. You dye a garment by, even if you're tie-dyeing, you're still submerging the whole thing into the substance. It implies a permanent change as a result of this immersion. Now, this is critical. This means that no matter how you shake a stick about it, baptism must be submersion. Now, the Bible, talking about water baptism now, the Bible doesn't speak of whether you 
recline back or if you push straight down or if you recline forward. It doesn't say how we do that. Here in the South, in America, we have kind of traditionally held the head, held the nose and dunked backwards. But some places you can't do that, so they'll actually help them go straight down and then come back up. Other places might go forward because you have better control that way and then have them come straight up. That's just water baptism. No matter how you look at it though, there's no way to come about baptism any other way but submersion. I don't know the church history to understand where sprinkling came from. I jokingly like to say a couple years ago, I, I point out we were in Ireland preaching and we took a tour of uh, St. Patrick's Irish Cathedral, or not Irish, duh, it's kind of redundant, St. Patrick's Catholic Cathedral in the city of Armagh, Ireland. And so our, our host, the Irishman, Pastor Gary Brown, we went to the cathedral, we sat through mass, and then we went into the side rectory or whatever it's called, I don't, I'm not up on Catholic lingo, and they had their infant baptismal thing. And uh, Pastor Gary Brown sprinkled me and I've I'm officially been baptized in the Church of Ireland. I'm an Irish Catholic and I knew I was Scotch-Irish but now I have officially been water baptized or really he put his hand in the water and just sprinkled it on me. We've got pictures to commemorate the whole thing. I've been baptized in St. Patrick's Catholic Cathedral in Ireland. I don't know what that does for me but it is what it is. My point is, I don't know where the sprinkling came about, but we have a lot of major denominations that do it. I don't believe they do it to be in rebellion to the Greek word or to scriptural doctrine. I think like many things, the culture evolved, the tradition evolved, and has never been righted. And now it's so ingrained in their flavor of Christendom to suggest anything else is like trying to turn a... a, a cruise tanker or cruise line on dime. You're just not going to be able to do it. There are four unique baptisms spoken of in the New Testament. Three of them are for the born-again Christian and one of them is not. Again, add an asterisk because we could argue about a fifth one, which we'll explain. Now, I want you to keep in mind that if we say there's four New Testament baptisms and the word baptism or baptizo means to submerge, this is going to make a lot more sense. While, while we're teaching on these, we'll also simultaneously prove that sprinkling is not part of it. It's not accurate. It's not an accurate interpretation of baptizo, nor is it an accurate representation of what the Lord intended when he said baptize. So the first baptism uh, that maybe is or is not apparent to you is John's baptism or the baptism of repentance. Now, that's John the Baptist. John the Baptist was called John the Baptist because he baptizoed. He, he's this crazy wild man with animal skins who lives off on the outskirts of Jerusalem, excuse me, outskirts of Israel, eating nothing but wild honey and locusts. And he comes preaching, and you know it's got to be a move of God because people are drawn to this wild man living out in the wilderness. And after his sermons, which he was always preaching in the spirit of Elijah, the preparation for the Son of God, the Messiah, the anointed one coming, at the end of his sermons, he would have an altar call. We would say an altar call, but really it was a water call. And he would always say the same thing. All right, now bring forth fruits, meat for repentance, or bring forth fruit that proves you've truly repented. And as an act of consecration, people would line up, go into the water, and he would baptize them. And what this was signifying was that they believed his message, that he was one, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare your way, make straight paths for his feet. 
He was the forerunner for Jesus Christ. And what the act of baptism was signifying under his ministry was we believe the messenger. We believe that the Messiah is coming and we're going to be washed and begin to live holy in preparation for the Son of God. It was the baptism of repentance. Acts 19 verse 4, I'm going to read this verse to us. This is Paul giving an explanation. Then Paul said, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance. That's, that's where we get the name for it. This is the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. So John the Baptist baptized with the baptism of repentance. He was preparing the way for Jesus' ministry. And of course, the Gospels bear witness to that. I'm going to read Luke chapter 3 to us real quick. Luke 3.16. Everybody's familiar with John 3.16. We forget often Luke 3.16. John answered saying unto them, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I comes, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Ooh, so we have a prophecy about another baptism coming. He said, I baptize you with water, but there's someone coming who will baptize you with fire. Water, fire, two different things, two different baptisms. John's was the baptism of repentance. The one coming, the Lord Jesus, would baptize with the Holy Ghost and fire. This baptism, the baptism of, of John, the baptism of repentance, is not for the church today. And that was made evident by the Lord, excuse me, by the Apostle Paul in Acts 19, when he said that they should be baptized in the name of Jesus. In fact, verse 5 says, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So these disciples that Paul found in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, they were born again, but all they knew was John's baptism. They had yet to receive water baptism in the name of Jesus. So though they had been baptized with John's baptism, they had yet to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so we see that evidently Paul baptized them in water again in the name of the Lord Jesus in obedience to the Great Commission. Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel, baptizing all men in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. John's baptism is not for today. In fact, Acts 19 is the last time we really see it. And after that, it becomes the believer's baptism. And the purpose is John's baptism was to prepare the way for Jesus. Now that Jesus is here, we don't need John's baptism. And what it signified, which is a, a nation preparing themselves to receive their Messiah. We are born again now through the Spirit. And then we're baptized after the fact. So that brings us to the first New Testament Christian or church baptism. And this baptism is by far the most important because without this baptism, you don't make heaven. Without this baptism, we're talking about you're going to hell. And that baptism is the baptism into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says, For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and we have all been made to drink into one spirit. So this is the baptism into the body of Christ. This is the baptism that is also called the new birth or called being saved or called being born again. And so when we're born again, when we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, it tells us that the one spirit, the Holy Spirit, takes us and baptizes us into one body. Which body? The body of Christ. This is the single most important baptism to mankind. 
This is the same thing as the new birth or the born again experience. When you call on the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit submerges you, we would say your spirit man, into the body of Jesus Christ and causes you to be brand new. Now, this is the most important because if you're not a part of the body of Christ, you are none of his. You have no part in him. So this kind of introduces or, or is another example of a very common biblical principle or a biblical phenomenon. There are many things in the Bible that, are, that go by multiple names. Even lots of people in the Bible had multiple names. So you had someone like Solomon, was called Solomon. He was also called Lemuel. That was another one of his names in the book of Proverbs. Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's called the, the Righteous One, the soon-and-coming King. He's called the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha, the Omega. We understand Jesus has a lot of names. Even Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, he went by several names. The second name, Puel, Puel. Jethro was also known as Puel. Then you had um, Ornan or Aravna, Ornan's threshing floor, also called Aravna's threshing floor in the end of Samuel or 1 Kings where David purchased it to make a sacrifice. So we have people who go by multiple names. We also have experiences in the kingdom that go by multiple names. So the new birth, it's called the new birth. It's called the born again experience. It's called salvation by faith. It's called being uh, baptized into the body of Christ. It's called being made a new creature in Christ Jesus. There's multiple names. The rapture, which we call the rapture from the Latin word rapture, which is the Latin translation of the Greek word harpezo. Harpezo is where we get catching away. Rapture means catching away or catching up. So rapture or rapture, if you understand the English word, when you talk about two lovers, in love, they're enraptured or they're caught up with one another. So even though the word rapture is not in the Bible, in the Latin Bible, the Vulgate Bible, it is. It's rapture, which means to be caught up, which is what First Thessalonians calls the rapture, the catching away of the saints. So that has multiple names. We'll see the same thing with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It's called the promise of the Spirit. It's called the baptism of fire. It's called the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the indwelling of the Spirit. It's got multiple names. And all these names kind of show us different aspects of what's being accomplished by the event. So the baptism into the body of Christ is another way to describe this born-again experience. It explains what happens when we're born again. The Spirit of God takes us and puts us into the body. Now, one of the things we also see from each of these baptisms is we see who's being baptized into what they're being baptized and who is doing the baptism. So John's baptism, John did the baptizing into the river Jordan. Who did he baptize? Those that were repenting, those that were eager, those that were zealous. Who did the baptizing? John did. Who did he dunk or submerge? Anybody who was repentant or penitent. So now in the baptism into the body of Christ, we have a couple of who, what, wins. Who is doing the baptizing? The Holy Spirit is baptizing us. Who is he baptizing? Us. Where? Into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit takes you and me, our spirit man, and baptizes us into the body of Christ. Now we're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is what theologically is called positional truth. 
temporal or temporarily or in the natural, we are seated in Tennessee or seated wherever you're seated. But in the spirit realm, the Bible's clear, we're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's the head, we're the body, we're in him. We've been made perfectly one together. But it was only by the work of the Holy Spirit that we were baptized into his body. Amen. That's the new birth. Let's look at Romans 6, 3. You have to forgive my raspy voice. This is uh, one of numerous recordings we've done today. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Now, this verse is often used to describe water baptism, but it doesn't say anything about water. This is talking about our positional truth. We were baptized or baptized, submerged into Jesus Christ. This is another reference to the baptism into the body. And then you have Ephesians chapter 4 talking about the same event. I love this verse. Ephesians 4, 4, there is one body, one spirit, even as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. Now, it would almost seem contradictory. This says there's one baptism, but Hebrews 6 says there's a doctrine of baptisms, plural. We can already see from scriptures that something else is being implied here. Because the same Paul who said one baptism is the same Paul who said we've been baptized into the body of Christ, who also taught us about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, who also said in the book of 1 Corinthians, I th I'm thankful I didn't baptize any of you, referencing water baptism. So Paul, he understood the doctrine of baptisms, but here he says there's one baptism. And in context, we're talking about the general body of Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. In previous, one body, one spirit, one hope of our calling. So we see the general picture of Ephesians chapter four is the oneness, the unification of every member in particular being placed into the body as it has pleased him. It really is in the same vein as 1 Corinthians 12 says that says that we're many members but one body. And so we understand by interpretation that the one baptism that's that's referenced here in Ephesians 4, 5, is the baptism into the body of Christ. Because apart from that, you are not a member. Apart from that, you have no faith. Apart from that, you're not one with God and he's not one with you. You're lost. So the one baptism Paul references in Ephesians 4 is the baptism into the body of Christ. Amen. That let's move on to our second baptism for the New Testament believer. That's believer's water baptism. We have a lot of references for that. Matthew 28 refers to the Great Commission, going to all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing all men in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Acts 8.12, that talks about the uh, Samaritan revival led by Philip, the, uh, the evangelist. Acts 8.12 says, but when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. We understand that to be water baptism. With them believing, that's a reference to being baptized into the body. Then we have Acts 8.13. Then Simon the sorcerer himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. So even Simon the sorcerer gets born again and gets water baptized. And he's allowed to be a running partner, maybe even a ministry of helps guy with Philip the evangelist watching the signs and wonders. 
verse 16. Actually, let's just keep reading verse 14 through 16. Now, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria, which is just a little north of Jerusalem, when they had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. Now think about that. This is where we're about to enter into the third baptism. They're born again. They're water baptized, but they've not received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. They're born again. They've been water baptized. We've covered that in the previous three verses, but they've not received the Holy Ghost yet. Verse 16 says, For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So apparently the born-again experience, water baptism, and the baptism of the Holy Ghost are three unique, subsequently individual experiences. The most important being the baptism into the body of Christ, which is your salvation, which is then followed up by water baptism. When Peter and John, the chief's elders at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria was experiencing revival, they go down, there, down to them to pray for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost, knowing full well they've only received salvation and water baptism. And so now they come down to lay hands on them. That's Acts chapter 8, verses 16. And then you have Acts 10, 47, 48. This is a story of the revival at Cornelius' household, the centurion. And they get born again. They speak in tongues. And then Peter says, who can deny these water? that they may be baptized upon whom the Holy Ghost has been poured out like upon us in the beginning. So that kind of reverses everything there. We'll cover that more uh, in another lesson. But I want you to see all these examples of water baptism and then Acts 19, 1 through 5, we've already covered that. Water baptism is an outward expression or an outward sign of what took place when you called upon the name of Jesus for salvation. So water baptism is an outward obedience, an outward demonstration, an outward expression of what's already taken place on the inside of you. Water baptism is the first sermon you will ever preach. You will testify through water baptism. You were alive once, you died with Christ, and you were raised a new man in Jesus Christ. And that's why we, we are water baptized. That's why traditionally we lower people backwards because it symbolizes a watery grave. Now, just to be honest with you, in the West, we bury people like this in the grave. But in other cultures around the world, they bury them going down into the fetal position into jars or coffins. In fact, in Asia, one of the common ways to bury people, a, what's that word, a cooper. A cooper is a barrel maker. Uh, but in the Middle East, excuse me, the Asia, barrels were how they would bury people. So they would, they would fabricate a barrel. And how do you put a person in a barrel? You kind of got to put them down, legs first, and then you dunk them into this barrel, and that's how you would bury them. So every culture around the world buries people a little bit differently. In the West, because we traditionally lay people on their back when we bury them, water baptism has followed along those lines. The Bible does not signify how we put them underwater, only that they go underwater. I've seen video of military personnel being water baptized overseas and all they had were 55 gallon drums of water and they would submerge them straight down. I've seen them baptized in pools. I've seen people baptized in rivers and lakes and ponds, uh, whatever it takes. I say you baptize them any way you can to get them under the water. And if you're a smallish person and you're baptizing Andre the giant, you may not be able to 
take them backwards. You may just need to go, just say, help me. We're going to go straight down. You, you kneel, then we'll stand up together. <laughs> Whatever you got to do. Uh, you will testify through water baptism. You were alive once, you died with Christ, and you were raised a new man in Christ Jesus. But here's the critical thing we got to understand about water baptism. It's for the believer, which means the infant baptism is totally unbiblical. There's no precedent for it at all in scripture. It was developed during the early Catholic days of the Catholic Church in Italy when Constantine made Christianity the law of the land. And so the early days of Catholicism, when we're talking 1,500 years ago, they were zealous and their hearts were in the right place, but they felt like the Catholics, the Catholic Church, the Holy Catholic Church, not the Roman Catholic, but the Holy Catholic Church. Catholic means universal or like worldwide across the board. They felt like their job to bring the kingdom was that the church was both spiritual and political. And therefore, in your advancing of Christendom, one of the ways you advance Christianity was to baptize infants so that they were part of the church from the time they were born. Now, we understand that to be a problem because the infant hasn't made a choice yet. They've not been born again yet. They've not reached the age of accountability. They've not had to repent of their sins. And so the culture developed that by baptizing an infant, they were brought up always a part of the church, whether they were genuinely born again or not. So what happened during the Reformation and then the Swiss Reformation that came after the Reformation, Reformation being Martin Luther, then the Swiss Reformation led by a Swiss named Zwingli and a Frenchman named John Calvin, is that they began to advance Christianity away from Catholicism and the legalism. And then out of the, the Swiss Reformation came these folks that took the Reformation a step further. And one of the, one of the things they wanted to, to part with was infant baptism. They could see that Catholicism had it wrong, but the reformers were still, Luther included, the reformationists, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, they were still really hung up on water, infant baptism, not water baptism, but infant baptism because they hadn't, they hadn't received revelation yet from the scriptures that infant baptism accomplishes nothing. And so these folks, upon being genuinely born again, they rebaptized their converts. Everybody in those days was baptized, or we should say sprinkled in the Catholic church upon being born and dedicated. But these folks realized, I haven't been born again. I wasn't born again until I was 15 or 18 or 20. Now I must follow in believer's baptism so they would be rebaptized. Well, the reformers thought that was heresy. They thought, how, how dare you? They, uh, they, they, this blew up a tremendous round of persecution. And to mock those that rebaptized, they gave them the pejorative or the, or the name. They mocked them and called them Anabaptists, which means rebaptizers. Now, the Anabaptists still exist today. The Anabaptists have been kind of a sect of Christianity. They were very popular and very part of American history during the days of Je uh, Thomas Jefferson. In fact, everybody who's ever heard the expression separation of church and state that was taken, it was, it was been around forever, been around since the days of the Reformation. The Anabaptists were very passionate about a separation of church and state because they didn't believe the Catholic Church had any right to tell us how to worship Jesus Christ. The Catholic Church in those days believed they were the state. And so the Anabaptists had written to Thomas Jefferson wanting to have confidence that the United States government and our new constitution 
would not tell them how to worship Jesus. And Thomas Jefferson wrote back and he basically coined the expression, don't worry, we'll make sure there's protocol in place so that there shall be a separation of church and state. The term separation of church and state is nowhere in the Constitution. It's honestly nowhere in the Bible, but it was a political hot button topic because our nation was established by pilgrims and Christians trying to escape tyrannical religious order where the Catholics wanted to rule or the Church of England wanted to tell everybody how to worship Jesus. And these folks were revivalists who were breaking away, finding a new and living way to serve Jesus. So the Anabaptists, the rebaptizers, wrote Thomas Jefferson. He wrote back, made the clause about separation of church and state, which now everybody believes is the law of the land. Now there is a thing called the Establishment Clause, but that's more American history than we want to get into. But the Anabaptists, they were made fun of for believing in a baptism after conversion, which is like, duh, common sense to us. And so strong was the schism between the Anabaptists and the Swiss reformers that uh, I believe they estimated three or 4,000 Anabaptists were martyred by Swiss reformers. Now what that means is born-again Christians were murdering born-again Christians over the doctrine of baptism. And the sick irony of it was the Swiss reformers said, oh, you want water? We'll give you water. And they killed most of them, martyred most of them by drowning them. They tie them up and throw them in the river. And that was their punishment for what they thought was a heresy. That is the doctrine of water baptism. Thank God we don't kill each other today among denominational circles over doctrinal differences. We find our common ground and preach the gospel and win the loss. But I want to give you the history of, of baptism and how contentious it has been for 2,000 years. There's a debate within the body of Christ as to which name should be used when a believer is water baptized. This is a very hotly debated subject here in the Upper Cumberland because we have some different denominations. Jesus commanded, quote from Matthew, baptizing all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So Jesus said all, all three. However, in the book of Acts, you see many people being baptized in Jesus' name. So what's the difference, I ask? We, I personally don't see a difference been a part of church services where they baptize in Jesus' name only. I've, I was raised Southern Baptist, so we baptize in all four names, if I can say it that way. By the authority of the name of Jesus, I baptize you now, my brother or sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then I think I've probably slipped up a time or two and baptized just in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Even talking about it, you see how ridiculous it can kind of be? Thank God people are being water baptized. There is a, a group of uh, de a denomination that is called a oneness denomination. What that means is they don't believe in a trinity. They're, I don't, wouldn't say they're anti-Trinitarian. They just don't see a trinity. Now, 500 years ago, they'd be burned at the stake for being anti-Trinitarian or denying the trinity because that's a heresy. They just don't see it. I have fellowshiped with oneness people for years, found them to be beautiful Christians that love God. They just have a massive blind spot in biblical doctrine. Oneness Pentecostals, typically, they're usually called oneness Pentecostals. They don't believe in the Trinity, so why in the world would they baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even though Jesus said to do it? So they typically will baptize in Jesus' name only. I just mix it all together because I'm not gonna split hairs on this. When both are biblical, and there's no harm to be done by saying when I'm getting ready to water baptize someone, by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the name of Jesus, 
I baptize you now in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that's what I do. By the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his name, I now baptize you, my brother, sister, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Any brother or sister in Christ can baptize you in water. Amen. It's not just a preacher's job. And here we see a believer is baptizing you in water. The believer takes you and puts you in water as a sign of outward conversion, as a sign of uh, obedience to Jesus Christ. It's water baptism. And here's the significance. It can be the first act of submission to the written word as a new believer. One church I know of, they keep their baptism always full. It's heated, it's ready to go. And the second you're born again, you're not leaving that service till you're water baptized. It can be the first thing a Christian can do to follow Jesus as their example. So it's upon being born again, you can do something before you leave that service. It signifies the death or a watery grave of the old man and the resurrection of the new man. It's the first sermon and testimony a Christian can preach. Even to this day, water baptism service will draw a family that won't go to church to watch the child be water baptized who's made a decision for Christ at the vacation Bible school or children's church. A family will come out of the woodwork to see a loved one get water baptized because they still reverence that. You are baptized for the remission of sins not the permission to sin. And it is more supernatural than we realize. We just sometimes cheapen it by ignorance. And that's not the will of God. In overseas, especially in Africa, lots of times somebody can be born again and when you water baptize them, demons will come out of them. And I can't explain to you necessarily why this new birth didn't drive demons out of them, except that the new birth takes place in their spirit man and these demons were attached more to their soul or to their flesh. But baptizing them, you'll drive demons out of people. Baptism in the Holy Ghost. This brings us to the fourth New Testament baptism, but the third for the believer because John's baptism doesn't apply to us. Matthew 3.11, John 7.37 through 39, Acts 1.8, and Acts 2.1 through 4. I'm going to read Matthew 3.11 concerning the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, John 7, 37 through 39. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that thirst, and out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. Acts 1, 8 says, tarry ye in Jerusalem till you be endued with power from on high. After that, the Holy Ghost shall come upon you. And then Acts 2, 1 through 4 says, and when the day of Pentecost is fully come, they were all in one place, one accord, and suddenly they appeared unto them as a rushing mighty wind, cloven tongues like us unto fire set upon them. They are all filled with the Holy Ghost and the spoken tongues, the Spirit gave them utterance. Those are not all the scriptures for this, but those are four pretty good foundational scriptures for this doctrine. Baptism of the Holy Ghost. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is for every believer. In fact, Acts 2 goes on to say that. It says that this promise, actually here's Acts 2, 39. For the promise of the Holy Ghost is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, as many as our Lord God shall call. As its name implies, the believer is baptized or submerged into the Holy Spirit. And we see from Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist prophesied and said, he, Jesus, shall baptize you in the Holy Ghost and fire. 
So in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost baptism, it is the Lord Jesus himself that takes you or me or the believer and submerges us into the Holy Ghost and fire. In the new birth, the Holy Spirit submerges us into the body of Christ. In the baptism of the Holy Ghost, Jesus baptizes us into the Spirit. This is a supernatural event. You cannot necessarily see anything in the natural because you cannot see the Holy Spirit with your eyes. As Acts 2 records, there set upon them cloven tongues like as of fire. That would have taken the gift of discerning of spirits to be able to see. It was a supernatural thing. I've never seen fire like that in the spirit, but we do have testimonies of sometimes when the church is praying in the spirit. We had one lady testify of seeing fire coming out of the people's mouths and resting upon someone who we were praying for collectively. Maybe perhaps a demonstration of this, Holy Ghost and fire, but that lady required the gift of discerning of spirits to be able to see that. Nobody else could see that. Jesus takes the believer and submerges them into the precious Holy Spirit. Just as a garment submerged in dye will come out soaking and sopping wet and dripping, having every fiber flooded with the dye, so the believer who Jesus has baptized with the Holy Spirit will come forth sopping and filled up to overflowing and dripping with the Holy Spirit. You will know something has happened to you. Let's look at Luke's gospel here. You'll know something happened because you've been changed. Luke 11, 11 through 13. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he ask an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? You will know something has happened to you because you have asked for it and it will have come upon you. Remember, John prophesied Holy Ghost and fire. Whoo, so you're gonna feel it. It's fire shut up in your bones and it finally gets a manifestation. Just as the dyed garment from the Greek word baptizo, because it is actually a dying terminology, as not dying as in it's gonna pass away, but to dye a garment. It's tie-dye, it's a tie-dying terminology. Just as the dyed garment is forever changed, so the one baptized is forever changed. Now, if we want to take the premise that baptism is sprinkling, what, do you imagine Jesus sprinkles you with the Holy Spirit? Well, he said it's come upon you. In fact, in Acts over and over again, it talked about the Holy Spirit coming upon them. That sounds more like a deluge than a sprinkle. The first obvious change will be the overflow of the Holy Spirit in their life as manifested by speaking in other tongues. And let me say this very clearly. We are a church. I am a preacher that believes first and foremost in the evidence of speaking in other tongues. I have friends that don't believe that you have to speak in tongues to be spirit-filled. And I've had this debate uh, in other countries too. But I base my doctrine not on experience because I have laid hands on many people and they did not receive the, the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. But if I base my doctrine on experience without balancing or tweaking it with scriptures, then my doctrine is carnally based. I'm going to say that again. If I base my doctrine on experience without adjusting or, or filtering my experience through the scriptures, then my doctrine based upon experience is a carnal doctrine. We don't base doctrine on experience. We base doctrine on the Bible. 
In fact, the Bible says all scripture is given and it's profitable for doctrine. So the reason some people believe you can be spirit filled and not speak in tongues is because they've laid hands on people and by faith they received the Holy Ghost, but they never spoke in tongues. Now, if you want to debate me and say, well, what if they went home and three days later they spoke in tongues? When did they get the baptism of the Holy Ghost? I'm going to tell you, I don't know. And I don't really care. I don't know if it's when I laid hands on them and they had trouble manifesting tongues. Oh, I don't know if it was the second they spoke in tongues. Between me laying hands on them, maybe two weeks went by before they actually started speaking in tongues. I don't know when the thing connected. And I honestly don't care. And I don't mean to sound flippant about it. But the point is, we got them spirit-filled. They spoke in other tongues. I base our doctrine that we believe in the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues and that if you're not speaking in tongues, you're not baptized in the Holy Ghost. Didn't say you didn't have the Holy Spirit, you just didn't have the baptism. I base that on the scriptures. So in Acts 2, everybody that got baptized in the Holy Ghost spoke in tongues. All 120 out of 120. In Acts 8, everybody that got baptized in the Holy Ghost spoke in tongues. All of the revival out of all the revival. Acts 10, the entire household, everybody joined to Cornelius, a great multitude. All of them spoke in tongues. So, so far, out of three experiences, all for all speak in tongues. They got baptized in the Holy Ghost. They spoke in tongues. That brings us to the fourth example in the book of Acts, chapter 19. Twelve men at Ephesus, all 12 spoke in tongues. Twelve for 12. That's 100%. That's a 1,000 batting average. That's a 100% return. So I base my doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Ghost is evidenced by speaking in other tongues, not by short-circuited experiences and prayer lines, but based on the Bible. I, at one point, up until about 10 years ago, I had a perfect record, if that's worth anything, that 100% out of 100% of the people I ever laid hands on to speak in tongues got it. But then I started pastoring and started realizing not everybody's in the right place to receive. We even have one dear sister. We probably laid hands on her 20 times in two years before she got it. Did she get it the first time we laid hands on her or the second she spoke in tongues? Uh -huh. I don't really care. I'm going to say when she spoke in tongues. Though by faith, we laid hands on her two years prior and every time after that. I don't know when it connects and it doesn't connect unless the Lord were to show me and he never has. But I believe the baptism of the Holy Ghost is evidenced by speaking in other tongues. Here, Jesus baptizes you into the Holy Spirit, and it causes fire. We have the manifestation of tongues, Isaiah 28, 11, Mark 16, 17, Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19, Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 14, and Jude 20. In every one of those scriptures, it says tongues is evidenced and moving apart by the Spirit of God. That's a lot of scriptures to help build us the doctrine of tongues. And... We can see further tongues is, from everyone, is for everyone from Mark 16 and Acts 2 and Acts 10 and Acts 19. In Acts, in every account, everyone present received the Holy Spirit and everyone present spoke in tongues. 100% received the Holy Spirit and 100% spoke with other tongues. And here's our final full uh, six bullet points. Actually, nine. The purpose of tongues, because this is one of the best things, and we still got to give you the fifth baptism real quick. Tongues builds, encourages, and recharges you as a believer. You need that, according to 1 Corinthians and Jude. You allow the Holy Spirit to intercede for yourself. That's Romans 8. The Holy Spirit likewise maketh intercessions with groanings that cannot be uttered. You pronounce a blessing. 1 Corinthians 14 says, when I pray in the Spirit, I declare blessing. I give thanks well. 
You worship God and declare his wonderful works, according to Acts 2.11. You can speak the unspoken mysteries of God, according to 1 Corinthians 4.2. Your spirit is praying, which is perfect prayer. It's flawless prayer, because it's as the Holy Spirit leads. That's according to 1 Corinthians 14. You're speaking directly to God, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Tongues are a sign to them who believe not. 1 Corinthians 14, 22 says, Therefore, tongues are a sign not to them that believe, but them to them that believe not. I don't understand why seeker-friendly churches that once spoke in tongues now put tongues in the back room. There aren't any non-believers in the back room to see the sign. You would want the believers, excuse me, you'd want the non-believers to be where the tongues are because the Bible says tongues are a sign for the non-believer. Unless, of course, you don't read your Bible and aren't up to date on Bible doctrine, that might be why you're afraid of the Holy Spirit, you're ashamed of his manifestation, and you put him in the back room believing the lie that the seeker who you claim you want to help doesn't want God, but you claim he's the seeking and you're seeking God. Holy Ghost is God. The Holy Ghost is giving tongues. Therefore, tongues is God. They claim to seek God. You might as well let the people speak in tongues because if the seekers want God, wavoom, he's speaking in tongues. The seeker-friendly movement, it's so deranged. It's so confused. They're almost about as confused as Hollywood. Not quite. Hollywood takes the cake. Here's your fifth one or your fourth, your fourth one for the body of Christ. And that is found in Matthew chapter 20. This one is not popular. This may be why nobody counts it as a baptism. Matthew 20, verse 22, last baptism. Not in your notes, but I'm going to give it to you. Jesus answered and said, you know not what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they say unto him, we are able. And he said unto them, you shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. The other verse that confirms this, and I'll explain to you what this baptism is in a minute. This is one of the few baptisms every theologian agrees on. Jesus said in Luke 12, 50, but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth, I tell you nay, but rather a division. This final baptism is the baptism of affliction, the baptism of persecution, the baptism of tribulation. This was the baptism Jesus Christ was constantly submerged in. And then, of course, it climaxed at the cross. Tremendous tribulation, tremendous affliction, true persecution. And he told us, yep, you shall be baptized with the same baptism. It's not a popular baptism, but he promised all those that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That is that fourth baptism for the New Testament believer. There, I'm going to amend this as I teach it. There are four baptisms for the New Testament believer. Make sure you have been made a partaker of each of them so you might enjoy all the benefits of what Jesus Christ has promised you. Amen. I trust you've learned something. I love the baptisms of the Spirit and the, the baptisms of the water and the baptism of the Lord Jesus. Uh, we need all three, all four. We may not like the fourth one, but it's still for us. But God will be with you in all of it. The more you have, the more of God you get. Amen. Father, I thank you for this lesson on the baptisms of the New Testament believer. We thank you for the sound doctrine, and I trust that it has strengthened and encouraged and fortified your student, your servant, your child, as they have listened and studied today. Bless them in their walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.